Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last time when we were looking at 1 Peter 5, we ended on, let's see, verse 8, where Peter says, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And then he quotes the Old Testament here. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In our text this morning, he picks up with that idea of humbling yourself and expands on it. This is beginning in verse 6, and we'll read through the rest of the paragraph through verse 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think Franklin Delano Roosevelt has a lot to answer for. There's one thing in particular I blame him for. He said these words. I'm not going to try to do it the way he does it, to imitate his voice. But he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Which is really beautiful if you think about it. It sounds beautiful. And like a lot of beautiful things, it also sounds true. But if you think about the days in which he was saying that the only thing you have to fear is fear itself, it's not exactly right. If he wanted to make that statement a little more accurate, he could have said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and the Nazis. That too. There was a lot to fear, in other words, other than just fear itself. And yet I think the beauty of that sentiment, the, the way that it resonates with us even now, uh, has had an amazing influence. So that when we seek to comfort people in their fears, it's as if the only way we know how to do it is by telling them there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. In Roosevelt's day, there was something to be afraid of. Right? There was an enemy that was afoot in the world. There was a real reason for fear. Sometimes your friends on social media, when they complain about their tepid coffee, uh, problems they're having with their smartphones, they'll say afterwards, hashtag, the struggle is real. To show that they're suffering too. That, that it may seem to you like a first world problem is being had, but in fact, they're suffering in, in just as real a way as anyone ever has. Well, they didn't have hashtags in World War II, and yet the struggle, it was real. There was a real enemy. There was a real reason to fear. I think the same is true today. It's true for us, and yet it's like we don't know anymore how to reassure people in their fears without telling them there's nothing to be afraid of. Do not be afraid, we say, because there is no danger. But the problem is, what if there is 
Like, what if there is danger? What if there is an enemy? Then all of our platitudes and the way that we typically reassure, all of it falls short, sounds empty, and we lose the ability to offer comfort. And the problem is, how do you reassure people not to fear and in the same breath warn them to be alert because there's something to be afraid of? You know, if you try putting a fearful child to bed at night, child who believes that perhaps monsters lurk under the bed, and you say, don't worry, you can go to sleep and don't be afraid, but there is a monster under your bed. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Like, we need to know that, that the dangers that we fear are not actual in order to be comforted. But what if they are? How can you find comfort when there really is danger? It seems to me that's exactly what Peter is doing in, in this passage that we've just read. He's saying, don't have anxiety. Cast your cares on God because he cares for you. And then in the same breath, he says, oh, and by the way, your adversary, the devil, he's like a roaring lion and he wants to devour you. Don't be afraid, in other words, and don't get devoured. That's Peter's message to us. Don't have anxiety, and at the same time, be very aware that there is plenty to have anxiety about. You have an adversary, Peter says, your adversary is hungry and you are on the menu. Do not fear. <laughs> Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Which, if you think about it, is very similar to the way that Paul wraps up at the end of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, right? As he's talking about the full armor of God. He gives a similar warning. He says, this is uh, Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So yes, the struggle is real. And it's been going on for a long time. From the very beginning. We've looked before at God's words to Cain, the original murderer in Genesis 4. A murderer who takes a life, but is actually spared the penalty of his crime. is shown mercy by God. But he's also given a warning about how to live in the sinful world that he's come up in, in which he's been raised. Cain is told, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now think about that. From the very beginning, Genesis 4, right at the start of the Bible, God is talking about the power of sin and the power of Satan. And now, in the New Testament, towards the end of the Bible, we find this very same language being used. These same warnings. Satan is like a lion. On the prowl. Sin is like a predator crouched at your door, scheming against you, seeking to rule over you, driven to devour you. These are the warnings that resound throughout Scripture. 
if we pause a moment and think about that history of Scripture, that sort of through line running through Scripture, like an easy way to think about what ties the Bible together, what all the different stories are really about, is the story of redemption. In many different eras and different epochs, in the Bible, God is revealing himself to people. He's not doing it fully, not completely. He's doing it progressively over time. So that what you have of the gospel in uh, Genesis 3.15 is, is, is a feeble spark in comparison to what will be understood later in the New Testament. But it is the same gospel being revealed little by little over time. As God was revealing himself, one of the things that he's addressing in the Bible is the problem of sin, the consequences of sin, how the world has changed as a result of the fall. And so in the Old Covenant, you see this, this huge apparatus of sacrifice that is designed in order to address the problem of sin. Right? The people of God in the Old Testament, they, just, they don't come to church to hear a sermon and sing. They go to sacrifice animals and pour blood on the altar as a way of of rolling the debt of sin back, the consequences of sin back. That sacrificial system is meant to address the problem of sin in a particular way, specifically the penalty of sin, which is death. The death and the condemnation that are the result of sin, that are the judgment on us as a result of sin, that sacrificial system is meant to deal with that. Now, it doesn't do it perfectly, in the Old Testament. Right? Otherwise, Christ would not have had to come and offer that perfect sacrifice. But that's what it's there for. So you see in the history of the Bible these extravagant measures being taken to deal with the penalty of sin. The penalty. Of course, Jesus addresses the penalty of sin with His atoning sacrifice. Because of the cross, we're no longer alienated from God. We're no longer under condemnation so that on the day of judgment, we can stand before God as just because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us, has been imputed to us. The penalty of sin, in other words, is taken care of at the cross. And that's the part of the sin problem that we're good at talking about. The penalty part. But there's a part that we're not so good at talking about. That's the power of sin. Talk to us about the penalty of sin, and we're strong, but when you talk about the power of sin, not so much. The power of sin in the life of human beings is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Did Paul think there was a predator crouching at the door of his tent? Yes, he saw the power of sin at work in his life. He saw the struggle against the power of sin, not just the penalty, but the power of sin as being central to the struggle of the Christian. And the question is, did Jesus do anything to help with the power of sin? Obviously, he did everything necessary 
to address the penalty of sin, but did he do anything to help us out when it comes to resisting the power of sin? We tend to act as if the answer to that question is no. We're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. Nothing you can do about it. We're all going to mess up once in a while. To err is human. To forgive is divine. There's nothing we can do about the power of sin. As Oscar Wilde says in the picture of Dorian Gray, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Beautiful words that aren't as true as they sound. We tend to surrender. Surrender in the struggle against the power of sin because we have victory in the struggle against the penalty of sin. But has Jesus done anything to help against the power of sin? Yes, the Holy Spirit. He has sent His Spirit into the world as a comforter to exhort us, as a helper to us. We are indwelled when we're in Christ by the Spirit. We think about, as we did earlier in the service, ascension. Jesus, when He ascended to heaven, and left those disciples staring into heaven after him. His departure was not like the last helicopters out of Saigon. Like whoever didn't get on, too bad for you. Instead, Jesus goes to continue his work in the presence of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit to continue his work here on earth. To abide with us so that we have the power to abide with him. The Apostle John says it, it is by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, the way to know that the penalty of sin has been dealt with in your life is to see the power of sin being broken in your life. The way to know that, that justification is real in your life is to see the Holy Spirit working sanctification in your life. As a convenience for the study of theology, we divide these things out. But it's important to recognize that our justification and our sanctification, our perseverance and our glorification are all parts of the one thing, salvation. It all goes together, in other words, by the power of the Spirit. The penalty of sin and the power of sin are being broken by the Spirit. It is possible not to succumb to the power of sin, in other words. And Paul, the same Paul who talks about the, 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 the war inside of him, the, the, the sinful dominion over his members, over his flesh, the very same apostle says that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you're like, well, Paul, you sound like a guy who's never been tempted. Because I've been tempted, and I can assure you, there was no way out. There was no possible way for me not to succumb. Paul would say, maybe you're just not looking for it. Maybe you're just not ready to fight. Like Jesus, Paul says, we shouldn't succumb to temptation. We should escape it. That it is possible for us to live free of the grip of sin. I'm not saying to live a sinless life in, in this life. 
But it is possible to see sanctification, holiness in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit giving us power to follow after him. In other words, uh, you do not have to be devoured. You do not have to be devoured. Yes, there is an enemy prowling around like a lion who wants to gobble you up, but it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. By God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have power to resist Him. Power to resist Him. And if you don't want to be devoured, then you must resist. You must resist. I've been thinking a lot over the past week as I meditate on this text of examples of resistance. Examples of of warlike aggression in the face of impossible odds. A determination not to be defeated despite appearances to the contrary. I told you already, actually earlier in the same sermon series back in January, the story of Admiral Duncan. He is the English admiral who, when he found himself alone on the ocean with one other ship, facing the entire Dutch fleet, rather than turning around and fleeing, he dropped the line and measured the bottom of of, of the ocean to make sure that when his ship had been sunk, his flag would still fly above the surface. You remember, if you know anything about American naval history, perhaps our first naval hero, John Paul Jones, was made famous by a fight that he had with the British where they were so furious at him and and, and whipping his, his boat with so much cannon shot that they actually blew away the flag, the colors on his mast. This is typically what you would do when you surrendered. You would strike your colors. And so the British called across to the American ship and said, have you struck? And John Paul Jones famously replies, I've not yet begun to fight. You love that kind of aggression, right? It looks like you're losing, but you're not ready to surrender. There's an old uh, Irish Republican ballad that uh, stanza always strikes me, kind of resonates warmly here. This is a a quote in poetry from one of the, the figures of the Irish Revolution, Carl Brewer. Here's the poem. And what says Carl Brewer if the last man is on the ground? If he is lying weak and helpless and his enemies ring him round. If he's fired his final bullet. If he's fired his final shot. And they say, come into the empire. He should answer, I will not. Defiance. Defiance. While FDR was telling us we had nothing to fear, but fear itself wasn't long before Winston Churchill would have to give a famous speech in June of 1940 reassuring people who knew they had more to fear than fear itself. And he said to them, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. I mean, what is it about stories like that that resonates with us even now? Even now, when many of the conflicts that drove them, we feel no attachment to. We don't hate the British anymore. They're our buddies. And yet, stories of the past and that, that, that determination to resist can fill us with inspiration. Well, where does resistance like that come from? Where does the determination to resist come from? But I think surrender becomes unthinkable the more you believe in what you're fighting for. 
the more you value what you're fighting for over against what you stand to lose. If the thing you're fighting for is more important to you than your life, you resist. You fight back. You don't roll over. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You can resist, in other words, knowing that faith is your strength. Maybe you are outnumbered and outgunned. Maybe there is no hope for you to resist in your own power. Peter says, that's fine. You don't have to resist in your own power. Your strength is faith. Your strength is in Him. Don't mistake him here. He doesn't mean a sort of generic faith. Not saying optimism. Resist Him firm in your optimism. Resist Him firm in believing in whatever it is you happen to believe because the main thing is that you believe in something. Because that belief in something will give you a kind of inner moral strength. No. He's talking about a very specific faith in Jesus Christ. And the power of the God who rules all things. That's the faith that is your strength. Stand firm in that faith. In other words, the faith that when you endure the humiliation you must endure, God will exalt you. That faith that promises the exaltation. You can resist knowing that your faith is your strength. And you can resist knowing that your suffering isn't yours alone. Peter says the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, I know ordinarily, it's not a comfort to think that, that you're just like everybody else. Like We've all grown up in a culture where it was really important to be individuals, like to express ourselves. The worst thing to know is that whatever's happening to you is the same thing that's happening to everybody else. Whatever your views are, whatever your strongly held opinions, your likes and your dislikes, your passions, to find out, oh yeah, most everybody feels the same way, that would be devastating to your individuality until you suffer. It's wonderful to be praised alone. It's wonderful to be in the spotlight alone. It's terrible to suffer alone. It's terrible to go through pain alone. So that words like these you can read if you haven't suffered, and they're not much of a comfort. But when you suffer, you go back to them, and it is comforting to know that what you've experienced, what you've sacrificed, what you've borne, what's been done to you, it's no different than what's been experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and throughout the history of the church. Whatever you feel that you've lost for Christ, it's no more, it's no different from what the rest of us have lost. And there's a unity in that, a community in that, a bond that gives strength. We don't suffer alone. We suffer with one another and we suffer with Him. You can resist knowing your suffering isn't yours alone. And you can resist knowing that God is all-powerful and he cares for you. That's the way that Peter can tell you, like, don't be anxious. Oh, and Satan is like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Satan may be like a roaring lion, but God is like Samson ripping lions apart with their jaws. 
He's more powerful than that. You don't have to fear your enemies, even though your enemies are real, because God is all-powerful, and what's more, He cares for you. It matters to Him what happens to you. He doesn't want to see you devoured. He's like wanting to see you not devoured more than you don't want to be devoured. You don't need to fear the power of sin. It's terrible as it is. You don't need to fear the power of sin as much as you must resist it because the power of God will break the power of sin. I think there is something noble about a hopeless fight. People who have no hope of victory, but they, they, they fight back anyway. They're determined, we'd rather die to the last man than give up. There's something noble about that. But that is not the kind of fight that we've been called to. Jesus isn't calling you to a last stand. Jesus isn't calling you to, to a battle in which we'll all ultimately be decimated, but it'll be a glorious thing for people to talk about later on. Not at all. You've been called to victory. We often speak about the struggle against sin as if it's an unwinnable fight. But just because the victory over sin will not be completed in this lifetime doesn't mean that, that victories aren't being won. And it certainly doesn't mean that our, our, our lot in life is to keep losing until we die. We're not meant to, to keep losing to sin over and over again until we finally slough off this mortal coil. The Holy Spirit hasn't been given to us, in other words, as a neutral observer. He's not here on God's behalf to just see what happens and report back. He's here to give us strength. He is here to give us the strength to resist. What that means is that Christ does not call us to resist in desperation, to resist in fear. He calls us to resist in hope. Not just the hope of glory to come but the hope of faithfulness in this life. The hope that in the battle against sin, we will not be overcome. Do not be devoured, Peter says. Resist Him, Peter says. Because in the end, you will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. One day, in other words, your wounds will be your glory. Your wounds will be your glory. There's a moment in my favorite Shakespeare play, Henry V, where Henry has to give his men an inspirational speech before the Battle of Agincourt. They are, they're really outnumbered by the French. And I know what you're thinking. That's still not much of a danger, being outnumbered by the French. But back then, it really was. They were way outnumbered by the French. Just a, a few, a little handful of Englishmen they were all going to be annihilated on the next day unless Henry could give them the best speech ever before the fight. Because as you know from countless sports movies, if you give a good enough speech, any group of misfits can overcome impossible odds. It's all about the rhetoric. Maybe not, but if it were, it would explain a lot. Because the speech that he gives, at least according to Shakespeare, is like the best speech ever to give before the fight. It's at least the most plagiarized speech. Everybody afterwards who gives a speech before a fight is basically trying to channel Henry V's St. Crispin's Day speech. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but there's just one moment 
that I want to remind you of. And I'm going to try really hard to read it without going like full Branagh on you. But uh, it's not going to be easy. Okay. Henry V. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. You don't get what he's saying here. He's saying, look, we're probably all going to get killed tomorrow, but if we don't, and you get scarred and wounded and stabbed in the battle, but live, one day on the anniversary of this battle, you're going to gather all your friends around, and you're going to roll up your sleeves and show them, these are the wounds that I had on the day of battle. These are the wounds that I had when I fought beside the king. Your wounds, in other words, the pain that you will endure tomorrow, the, the, the brutality, the stabbing, the suffering, all of that one day will be your glory. One day, you won't have wealth, you won't have castles, you won't have all of that. You'll have scars to show that you were there. And they'll be glorious. One day, your wounds will be your glory. Now, Peter rouses us with a similar thought. We're nearing the end of the epistle. All that's left really are the final greetings. He's, he's bringing everything to a close and these final words that he wants to speak to us are these. After you have suffered a little while, he says, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to fight a battle. You're going to get some wounds, some scars, and it's going to hurt. But one day, those scars will be your glory. It's interesting to think when we talk about the resurrection and, and uh, what will glorified spiritual bodies be like. We don't know a lot about that because the Bible doesn't give us much to work with. But one thing we do know is there were some interesting things about Jesus when he came back after the resurrection. Like Jesus had some, some abilities that he hadn't had before. The walking through walls kind of thing. That's what I'm thinking of. But he still had scars on his body. I don't know about you, but when I sort of do that sort of metaphysical contemplation, what will resurrection bodies be like? You know, I'm, I'm wondering, like, so now what sort of abs will I have? And it's a comfort because I'm not going to have any in this life, but in the, you know, the next maybe, maybe I would have some. And so I think we're always thinking of it as like, in what ways will I approve, improve? But in what ways will I be idealized? You know, how tall am I going to be? How symmetrical? That sort of thing. Right? But, but the thing that we know physically about Jesus when he comes back is he still bears the scars. Only they've changed. Because the scars that were given to him to wound him, to humiliate him, are his glory. They identify him. right? They verify that he is who he claims to be. You know, touch the scars and you will know. 
This can only mean that the scars of Christ did not detract from His glory. Or He wouldn't have had them. They were part of His glory. And surely the same thing is true for those who follow Him. When the world around you was chasing pleasure, you were sober-minded. When the world around you was blind, you had to be watchful. When the predator came to devour you, you resisted him. And after that, God restored you. He confirmed you. He strengthened you. And he established you. Another one of those famous speeches, Winston Churchill, when he was talking about the, the Battle of Britain, imagined that if the British Empire lasted for a thousand years, people would still look back at that moment in 1940 and say this was their finest hour. But that's not going to happen for us. We will not look back from glory and say that was our finest hour. Because what God intends to do for us and in us and through us in that day will far outshine anything that we can imagine here. Our finest hour is the hour to come when after resisting we partake in the glory of victory. God has promised to build us up, to restore us, to establish us. Which means that one day we will look back and see that the dominion was always His. Peter ends this paragraph with doxology, with praise. The, the theology that he shared is so profound to him that he, he can't end with a period he has to end with an amen. It leads him to worship. He says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I can see that it seems oftentimes that the power of sin is uh, invincible. You see everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's wrong inside of us and it doesn't seem as if that battle can possibly be won. It seems evil always has the upper hand. But Jesus broke the chains of sin. He didn't just break the chains of sin. He shackled the Lord of sin. And from that day forward has been plundering His dominion. Has been showing His power in the world. It is hard sometimes now for us to even think of resisting, let alone winning. But one day, we will look back and see that God was always ruling and reigning. That God was always on His throne. He was always exercising dominion. That He sent His Son into the world. That Jesus Christ was humiliated, was punished, was killed. But because of that was exalted and glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father and given all power, all dominion, and now rules and reigns. He is our Lord. And it's only our weakness that has blinded us to this. But now, in the Spirit, God gives us the strength to see. We don't have to be devoured. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to resist. And God will one day restore and confirm and establish us and strengthen us in Christ. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.